0: Welcome to another episode of Culture Study. My name is Omar Isa, and on behalf of the Tailored Heritage team, I wanted to thank you all for tuning in today. Today's guest is Dina Takuri, who I was honored to speak with just a few weeks ago here in San Francisco. You might know Dina for her role as a senior presenter and producer at AJ which is Al Jazeera's digital news platform. The videos she produces and hosts often garner millions of views on Facebook, YouTube, and other social platforms, and for good reason. Dina has reported internationally on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, tensions on the Korean Peninsula, and on Europe's refugee crisis, where she was actually one of the first journalists to ever broadcast using Facebook Live. Among the domestic stories she's covered are the 2016 presidential race, Flint's water crisis, the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock, and ISIS crackdown on undocumented people under Donald Trump. She's extensively covered the Black Lives Matter movement, um, and also has covered issues related to Arab and Muslim communities in the United States. So, in other words, Dina is an amazing human being with a talent for storytelling. While you're able to watch and hear Dina tell stories online, you may not have heard about her story. And that's what we discuss on this episode of Culture Study. She's a first generation American with strong Palestinian roots, and she touches on her constant search for balance between those two cultures. We talk about everything from the negative depictions of Arabs in Hollywood and the mainstream media to the horrific attacks on September 11, 2001, and how that terrible moment in history has put a target on the backs of American Muslims to this day. She also discusses her journey as a woman of color and how she navigated from her college days at UC Berkeley to her present day role at AJ+ and she even talks about fun things like her interview with Bernie Sanders and taking shots at Donald Trump to his face. My takeaways from this conversation were really positive. Dina really embodies the tailored heritage motto that we are more alike than we are different, and she's on the front lines on the fight for equality and justice for all. She often uses her platforms to give a voice to those who are unheard, and she has a relentless commitment to speaking the truth to those in power. So with all this being said, I hope you enjoy this episode of Culture Study. If you do enjoy this episode, please do me a huge favor and share it with one other person who might enjoy it as well. My only hope is to use this platform to inspire people to pursue their dreams by hearing about the amazing journeys of people such as Dina. Thank you so much for tuning in and peace. I am super excited to be here. Tina, welcome to the show. Thank you for having welcome me. Welcome to Culture Study. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to be honest. I'm a little bit nervous because you're a journalist and I'm like a fake journalist right now. And I'm trying to be like, I'm trying to keep up with you, basically. There's
1: no such thing as a fake journalist, so.
0: <laughs> if you have pointers, you can always tell me. But um, no, but I'm really excited to have you on the show. And um, Taylor Heritage, myself, says who you met um, a little bit earlier in Milton, we started Basically, as a form of inspiration for ourselves, right? It's like it's kind of like a um, an aggregation of everything that we're inspired by and everything that who everyone who inspires us and and culture study, which is this podcast, has kind of been a way for us to better explore that as well um, with people who directly inspire us. And you, you know, we don't always see or have a platform for people of color or women or Muslims, and we never see them really in a positive light. And I think you're an example of that. So. Again, thank you for being here. Um, thank, thank
1: you for saying all that. Yeah, that was and, a lot. I appreciate uh, it.
0: <laughs> so for those who haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, how would you describe yourself?
1: Um, so you gave all the qualifiers <laughs> identity-wise. I am a Palestinian-American uh, Muslim woman born and raised in San Francisco, product of the public school system here. I'm a journalist at AJ+, Um, I'm a senior presenter there and a producer, been there from the start. AJ+, is Al Jazeera's digital video channel, and so I'm a correspondent who travels all over the world doing stories, um, we say that give voice to the voiceless, speak truth to power, and sort of challenge the status quo, so I consider myself progressive, I come from the left, you know? Um, Yeah. I'm a passionate person. Um, I'm also a very goofy kind of silly person, which doesn't come across on my work because, you know, I'm reporting on very serious things. But that's a side of me that my close friends and family know well. Yeah.
0: So you're so you're thank you for that. You're you're back in San Francisco, which Mm -hmm. is where you're based. And you just came from South Africa. Yeah. Uh, What were you doing out there?
1: We were reporting on the water crisis in Cape Town. So Cape Town is on track to become, potentially become um, the first major city in the world to completely run out of water. So it's not all of South Africa. It's just Cape Town. So we were reporting on that. Luckily, this day zero, the day where they have to turn the taps off, um, has been postponed. Um, Before, they were saying it's going to be in April. It got pushed back to May because of conservation efforts. Now they're saying we're probably good through the rest of the year if people stick to just 50 liters a day. But you know, going into next year, it's a huge problem. So we reported on that. I also did a video, and this will come out later this month, that looks at post-apartheid apartheid. So for me, going to South Africa for the first time was... A very emotional experience because, you know, we all studied apartheid. We all understand yeah. it. And yet going there and seeing its legacy, which is still very alive and well. Uh, Cape Town is a completely divided city yeah. socioeconomically, but that falls along racial lines as well. Um, it, was, it was emotional to go there and see it. And especially for me coming from the context of being a Palestinian, where what is happening in the occupied territories is described as apartheid and being able to connect those dots and like feel the love that South Africans have for Palestinians for that very reason. um, It was really powerful.
0: How did you see or how did you feel that love? I'm curious.
1: There were flags, you know. I yeah. saw a number of Palestinian, Palestinian flags. flags. Anybody that I told I'm Palestinian, they're like, oh, you guys are our brothers and sisters. Wow. Our, our, you know, our struggles are connected. And then by chance, I happened to stumble upon Nelson Mandela's grandson, Mandla uh. Mandela Mandela, um, one of the local journalists that we were working with, a fixer there named Yazid. We're walking by a coffee shop. He's like, that's Nelson Mandela's grandson. I interviewed him once. I'm like, let's go say hi. So we talked to him and I introduced myself and I said, you know, I'm Palestinian American. He said, I just got back from Palestine and, you know, we are with you guys. And
0: wow, yeah, it was, it was wow a- he visited. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's I mean, that's really powerful. And it, it seems like from what I've seen of the work that you do everywhere you travel, you're you're you become a, a part of it or at least you're able to observe it on kind of in a first person level, like actually being on the ground. And I'm sure it takes a toll. Yeah. How do you how do you deal with that? Because you're going to South Africa. I know you just did something in uh, a piece on Skid Row and in Los Angeles, right. which was really powerful as well. Mm-hmm. But tell me a little bit about how you deal with. I mean, like you're fully invested into these projects and you're you're not only like reporting on them, but you're producing them and you're trying to create context for everyone else to understand uh, for the viewers to understand what's going on. Like you really have to be involved with it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um- I think for one, I'm, I'm constantly grateful, you know, for the, for the access that I have, for this platform that I do have to be able to travel around the world and have a front seat to history, I think is a, is a major blessing. Um, you know, and then to be able to, and I think I kind of like report with my heart on my sleeve, you know, it's, it's, it, it does take an emotional toll, but you know, you're constantly reminded of, on the one hand, how, much injustice there is in this world and it's not fair and it's difficult to reconcile with that I'm constantly you know thanking God and, and being mindful of how grateful I am for basic things that we take for granted like the fact that you know having just returned from Cape Town they're limited to a two minute shower a day you know how often do we think about that right. um, you know going to Skid Row and, and doing a story on how extreme the homelessness crisis is there and the mental health crisis you know basic things we take for granted like a roof over our, sho- a roof over our heads um, so I'm constantly grateful you know, constantly yeah. counting my blessings. And I would say that with every story that I do, you know, I leave part of myself there and I take part of that setting and those people with me. And so, you know, it's 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 a lot to carry sometimes, but um, but I wouldn't trade it. Yeah. You know, I just think it's it's made me a more compassionate person. I think you can go two ways. You could become more callous and just kind of indifferent yeah. or it can expand your heart and your mind and see that we're actually all connected and we're all more similar than we think. And I think I've chosen the latter route. Like, I'm not going to lie, I cry sometimes. You know, sometimes on camera you don't see it. Sometimes when the cameras are turned off, like uh, during the refugee crisis in Europe when we were walking with refugees, you know, day in, day out, and like just seeing mass suffering on such a tremendous scale. People who look like me, who sound like me, who could be my cousins. Like, I would go home to the hotel, we would stay in the hotel. Um, to edit and stuff every night and just like cry, cry, cry. And that pain stayed with me for a long time. It's still there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm an emotional person. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> you know, I just, I am. Which it is makes good. me who I am. I hope yeah. so.
0: No, I think, I mean, I think that's amazing. In the little traveling I've done, and, you know, I'm still blessed to have been able to travel a good amount mm-hmm. and still hopefully have a lot more to go. But in the traveling I've done, I've also, um, I mean, it takes a toll on me as well. And I'll give you an example. Like I went to Cuba with Cesar and Milton and we're going to go to Cuba and we're going to look at these amazing old buildings and these fancy cars that were like from the 20s or 30s or 40s. And you actually get there and like all of those things are like they're there. And it's it's amazing to see these cars and amazing to see these buildings. But it's realizing that Cubans that we were interacting with are spending like weeks and on weeks fixing their cars because they don't work. And so while we look at it as like, oh, aesthetically pleasing or like this is a really cool thing to do. This will
1: be great to put on the gram. Yeah, exactly. This will be great for the Instagram. Mm -hmm.
0: It's real. And we don't a lot of times, at least I do my best to kind of realize that and be humbled and, and thankful for the blessings that I have and the opportunities I have that. Um, a lot of people don't. So yeah. I think in that same fashion, you do that and you're doing that on a way larger scale. You're going to some like very, I mean, you're talking with refugees, you're, you know, on the ground at Black Lives Matter protests or Ferguson. I mean, you've done all sorts of things. So I commend you for doing that.
1: Thank you. Um, I think it constantly makes you ask yourself, why have I been given the life that I've been given? Why have I been given the privilege that I have? And what am I willing to do to risk that privilege? You know, And this is a question that I've asked myself my whole life because- I grew up born and raised in San Francisco um, to first generation, you know, Palest- I'm first generation to immigrant parents. Yeah. And Palestine was a very big part of my life, always growing up. Uh, my mom would take me and my little sister since we were babies, and we'd spend the whole entire summers there. Like, we're talking during the first intifada, like, curfews, you know, crossing the border was hell, just like, nothing to do, witnessing occupation, witnessing daily injustice, and then coming back and you know, to my comfortable life here in San Francisco with Nickelodeon on TV and like yeah. the mall and everything. And and I would like, you know, it felt unfair. And, and, and I felt fortunate that I've been given this life and like, you know, it could have easily gone another way. So what can I do to sort of equalize that? Or what can I do... To do something about what I feel is a very strong injustice. Yeah. Um, I didn't grow up the way my cousins did over there. I've had way more opportunities. I've been way blo- more blessed to, to be American to have this passport to have the type of upbringing that I did here. And on top of that, my father, the way he you know chose to discipline two daughters that he's raising in America, <laughs> you know, terrified doing so, is he would. If we fell out of line, the constant threat was like, be good or I'll send you back to Palestine, you wow. know? And I believed it. Like, That's this so dude cool. wasn't playing. Like, he was <laughs> about to deport us to Palestine to be disciplined there. Wow. And so I had that threat, like, constantly looming in the back of my mind. So I was like, yo, I got to stay in line. Like, I can't mess up because I don't want to live over there, you know? Yeah. Like, they don't have X, Y, Z or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um. So I think that was making me, again, like always mindful of, of sort of the privilege and, and, you know, the life that I've been given here.
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, I'm going to be straight up right now. You just answered like the next 20 questions I had. Oh, okay. in your no, no, no. But that's, I mean, that that's amazing because you're very authentic to your story. And I think that shows in the work you do now. And so the fact that you carry that with you everywhere you go is really powerful. So yeah, I still want to, I want to talk a little bit about your childhood and your upbringing. You said that, um, well, you were, you're Palestinian. Were you born in, the, in San Francisco? Mm-hmm. Okay. So tell me about um, I guess paint that picture. Like, what was it like growing up here, um being a child and and also, I'm assuming very strict immigrant parents? Oh,
1: yeah. So born and raised in San Francisco, Kaiser Hospital, <laughs> <Fury>. <laughs> um, I grew up going to the public schools here, mostly in the sunset district. Um, my parents, like I said, are Palestinian. My dad worked very hard. Um, we were probably, I would say, lower middle class mm-hmm. growing up. And they were very strict. I mean, I can imagine how scary it was for them to be in a new country, you know, raising kids for the first time, trying their hardest to make sure that we retain sort of our cultural identity, that we retain our, a sense of religion um, and not completely become American, whatever that means. But for for us, it was just like, it was a struggle, dude. Yeah. I think a lot of uh, a lot of first-generation kids can identify like, totally. you know, like there's like no boys, no boys can call the house. You can't do this. You can't do that. <laughs> don't go here. Don't wear that, you know? Yeah. Um, so there was a culture clash that was, a, you know, an, a constant struggle in my life. Um. I I went to Berkeley after I graduated from high school. They let me move out by some grace of God. Like I they you know, growing up, my parents were always like, You will never live in the dorms, yeah. you will never leave our house until you're married <laughs> type of thing, you know? They let me go to Berkeley, which I was really happy about. But then the stipulation was that I come back to visit them in San Francisco every weekend and like stay a night or two. Right. So I did that. I just so didn't basically fight no it. parties. Um yeah, you know, that might have been a...
0: Like, they they're controlling what they could. Yeah, they were yeah. controlling
1: what they could, and they were trying to keep me in line. And, and me, I, my whole life, I always... I mean, I was good. Like, I was a straight-A student. I didn't get in trouble. I followed their rules for the most part because I was always scared. I was like, there is so much on the line. And if I mess up, it can all come crashing down, and I yeah. can't. Like, I have to get out of here. They're I have gonna send to send
0: you back to Palestine.
1: They'll send me back to Palestine, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah, the school picked out and everything. Like, it was a vivid picture of what my life was going to be like in Palestine, (laughs) you know. Um, So, you know, I went to Berkeley. I studied international development studies. And... Like, by the my third year there, I was, you know, all my friends were either going the medical school route or the law school route, especially mm-hmm. a lot of like my Middle Eastern friends. And I just didn't want that. So I traveled to Egypt with a friend and like was spent the whole summer there, did some internship at a newspaper called Al-Haram Weekly, like a weekly intern, a weekly um, English newspaper in Cairo. And I came back and was like, okay, I want to go do my master's, you know. So um, after after undergrad, I went to D.C. for um, the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. I got my master's in Arab Studies because I, I wanted to go straight through and I wanted to get out of the Bay Area. Like, I never mm-hmm. took myself to be one of those people who'd want to leave home or move far away. But by my third, fourth year at Berkeley, I was like, there's got to be more than the Bay Area. Like, I right. got to get out of here. I want to experience something else. Yeah. And I moved And I moved with my parents' maybe tolerance, uh, not really their full encouragement or blessing. They're like, there's a university across the street. Why don't you go there? (laughs) I knew I had to do it in order to kind of get the opportunities that I wanted. So I did it.
0: So I'm going to rewind a little bit because I want to know. I mean, you actually provided your trajectory in terms of career, right? Mm -hmm. Like you talked about going to Georgetown for Arab Studies. um, And journalism is obviously a big part of your life. Um, When did that come into play?
1: Oh, so... I grew up watching the news a lot and I credit my father for that because he always intended our lives to, in the U.S. to be temporary. He always thought that we'd go really? back into Palestine, that he would be a professor there. That That's where we, you know, he was always just kind of waiting for the right window of, of time for peace to, like, prevail and for it to be a good time to go back home. Obviously, that never happened, and it's not going to happen anytime soon, given the situation and how deeply entrenched the occupation is. But what, what did happen was, you know, he had the news on CNN. 24-hour news was, like, the, the highlight of his life. You know, I, I grew up sitting there and watching the news and just kind of, like, internalizing everything, being critical of how things are reported, you know, a keen sense of what's going on in current affairs, seeing how Muslims and Arabs and Palestinians are represented, right. um, seeing how we're demonized, not only in, in the news, but also in, like, pop culture and stuff. And it, it bothered me, and it, and it really, like... Yeah, it, it really left an impression on me, and I wanted to do something to change it. Because I was watching the news so much, like, I would watch and be like, I can do that. I want to do that, yeah. you know? Like, I want to be an anchor one day. Um, and at the same time, I wanted to sort of correct the negative image of people who look like me, while yeah. also never seeing anyone who looked like me, right? So um, I think yeah. that's kind of what informed the career Yeah, and I was, I was, I was
0: actually just going to follow up with that. Like, who were your role models growing up when it came to, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be limited to journalism or even Mm -hmm. like the news, but I feel like there wasn't really anyone that looked like you being Mm -hmm. a woman of color, being Muslim, being Palestinian, Mm -hmm. American, that was either like hosting the news or out there on the field. No,
1: there wasn't anyone who looked like me. I mean, Christiane Amanpour is is a huge inspiration. And I think, you know, I I liked her a lot. I would say though that there's two women that I loved at the time, but I couldn't understand at the time why they had such a profound impact on me. One is Oprah, actually. And you know, I remember I would come home from like elementary school or middle school and drop my backpack and at 4 p.m. watch her show, right? And at the time, I couldn't articulate to you that this is a woman of color and she broke barriers and she's like killing it on the mainstream. I just right. liked her and I liked how she asked people questions and she connected and, you know, I, I yeah. her interview style, I think I learned a lot from. Um, and the other one is Selena. The oh, wow. Mexican American, like Queen of Tejano music. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm a little pal. Like, I, you know, I think in her, other than the fact that she's extremely talented, like, may she rest in peace, you know, yeah. extremely talented, beautiful, I saw how she straddled both cultures really well. Like, here's a brown woman who's perfectly American, who's crossing over and speaking in Spanish. She didn't compromise her Mexican identity at all. And I think, you know, in some ways, I've sort of paralleled that with my career. Like, I never diminish the fact that i'm arab or palestinian or anything i'm, I'm kind of like straddling both cultures i right. think so i think that's why like me and a lot of other arab girls by the way love her like i know a lot of latinas adore her but a lot of the my arab american friends are obsessed with her Wow, just like i am yeah. so i would say maybe those two are, are, are role models in some way
0: that's or amazing. inspirations i should say yeah that's amazing it's amazing that you bring up selena because um you talk about the duality of your own like identity yeah um, and that's something that i've played with i guess my whole life like i think about Growing up and being like what eight years old, maybe nine years old, and thinking life was good, and you know, like where am I going to go get my next meal? And I really want these Hot Wheels. But and and growing up kind of in this American culture, and then also going to pray and going to Friday prayer and fasting for Ramadan, or at least training to quote unquote right, um, training to fast for Ramadan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the fact that you brought up Selena, who who again thinks about her duality or had had to play with that, I just think that's really interesting. And then I was actually was going to ask you about um. Like when 9-11 hit, that that was the first time like I questioned who I was, right? I was like, why? I went to a Muslim middle school mm-hmm. or elementary school at the time. And I was like, why are we getting bomb threats at our elementary school? This is LA. Like, you know, it's, it's diverse. Everyone loves each other. We celebrate each other's cultures. Yeah. I play soccer with a bunch of different people, whether they're black or white or Hispanic or Asian or whatever it is. You are obviously more aware of what was going on than mm-hmm. I was. But how did you kind of deal with that? And what what was the result of that immediately?
1: Yeah, it was hard. I was in high school. I was in my last year of high school. So there goes the age difference between us. Um, <laughs> I was pretty politically conscious at that age. Um, I remember, you know, the second intifada had been raging, the uprising in, in Palestine at the time. And I used to go... Funny enough, I took Hebrew class in high school because Lowell High School in San Francisco offered, like, every language except for Arabic. Wow. So I was like, okay, let me go learn the next best convenient thing, you know. Yeah. Um, it was a great class. It was a great experience. But towards the end, I used to, like, cut class and then go to SF State and protest with, you know, with the college students, like, yeah. protesting the Intifada. So 9-11 came around. And and I remember, I mean, there have been other instances in my life where I'm just like, oh, God, don't let it be an Arab. Don't let it be Muslims. Don't let it whatever. And, of course, it was. And, I mean, it was hard. It was hard. I would say there wasn't, there weren't too many racist like incidents in in my high school, um, but it was again that kind of you have to automatically assume this very defensive posture, right. and like you know, constantly define who you are in terms of
0: like th- we're not terrorists, we're not this, we're not that. So um, you had thought about it before, but it wasn't until that moment where you realized that you almost need to be like fully aware of what was going on and understand that there are like people kind of out to get you a little bit mm-hmm. and i'm sure you experience that a little bit being Palestinian. i mean I'll, I'll tell you this
1: like growing up i always knew that arabs and muslims and palestinians what have you are antagonized and mm-hmm. so it was almost like this kind of self-consciousness that i always carried with me and it wasn't just from 9-11 it was right. before that you know it was like i would be like kind of ashamed to tell people that yeah. I'm Muslim, like right. you know, because you do you 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 internalize that from yeah. like the first Gulf War to seeing how Arabs are depicted in Hollywood. Um, I was so just this- gonna
0: say even even like uh, Aladdin for an example, yeah. example, which is a really great movie. At least I really liked it, okay. but but um, but at the same time, like I think you mentioned this before, but they always say that the bad guys are the ones that sound Arab, yeah, right? They, like the good guys are they're like Aladdin it has this very Americanized English, yeah, the way they speak English, the way they speak English, and then you you hear like the bad guys and it's like talks like how my dad would talk, for example, yeah, you know,
1: exactly. The the villains have like thick Arabic accents, just like my parents, and you internalize that, you know, and it's it becomes part of your subconscious, so. I was always, like, I was always very troubled by that. In middle school and stuff, I would write term papers about, you know, what it means to be Arab and Muslim in America and, like... I remember reading, like, Jack Shaheen, who's like, you know, he, he died last year, but he's, a, he's an incredible um, scholar who really studied the depictions of Arabs in, mm-hmm. in mainstream um, American media. And I read a book called The TV Arab, where he, like, goes through so many different depictions of how of, of Arabs in Hollywood and how uh-huh. demonized they were. I'm like, yo, this is right. Like, he articulated exactly what I'd known all along. And so I kind of started that research early on in my life. And it was always an interest for me. And it was always something that I kind of wanted to
0: That's amazing. Fix. The fact that you were aware of it at such a young age is is pretty amazing i mean one it goes into you being a straight a student um (laughs) and two just i think you were brought up in that environment right like you said going back to palestine Mm -hmm. um and also living in the u.s and kind of having the luxury of being wherever like for the summers um i'm sure that taught you a lot as well um i actually wanted to ask you a little bit about palestine um how is it that you yeah, I guess, how, how did you stay connected?
1: Yeah, I mean, so we, like I said, we would go frequently, like every two years, three years, we'd spend the whole entire summer there. Mm-hmm. Um, Arabic was spoken at home. Arabic was my first language. I switched to English when I went to school, but I'm, I'm still fluent today. Um, but, you know, it was so important for her to take us there because we didn't have family in the U.S. Like, I didn't have that typical Arab uh, or Arab-American experience of having tons of cousins and uncles and aunts around you. Everyone was over there, so right. it was my connection to family. It was my connection to identity. Um, there's a strong palestinian community in san francisco that my mom you know was very plugged into i went to arabic school on the weekends and stuff mm-hmm. so same here yeah and then they would have us sing like songs about palestine and oh wow yeah there'd be like you know every year in golden gate park or something it would be like yom Philistine, like a palestine day palestine cultural day so the the culture in the, at home they'd cook you know arabic food levantine food palestinian food whatever so it was never it was never something that wasn't part of me you know right. as i got older Um, I would say college and beyond, I started going to Palestine every year. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just something that I had to do. And it's something like, you know, my senior thesis at UC Berkeley was about the Palestinian economy. It became an academic interest for me as well, in addition to a personal
0: one um, Um, and a
1: professional one later on.
0: In terms of um, being Palestinian, but also being Muslim, were your parents super strict growing up, like when it came to Islam?
1: Yeah, they were pretty strict. I think oftentimes the religion and the cultural kind of just were, you know, flowed into one another but um they were they were they were strict yeah no sleepover Um, like some some of the things i agree with in hindsight like i think there's some wisdom behind being careful about where your children sleep because it's a it's a scary world out there and i've heard horror stories but you know at the time i I hated it and i fought it and i just wanted to be normally a normal american kid
0: it seems like every person of color almost every person of color that i talk to that is a first generation american has that same struggle of identity you want to fit in here but you also want to understand or you realize how important it is to understand where you come from and I think coming from myself like I'm not fluent in Arabic even though it was like my first language growing up and I have never been to Syria which is where my dad is from Mm. I've never been to India which is where my mom is originally from but um, those things make me kind of long for it and so so I've done my best or I'm trying my best to to get closer to it so again I think it's a blessing and I didn't realize it growing up, but it's a blessing to have those parents that are really strict with you and say, "This is your identity. This is your culture. Be proud of it." Yeah. Um. And and yeah. So um, I want to and I'll tra- deport
1: you back there if you fall out exactly. Of <laughs> in my case, um,
0: I want to transition and talk a little bit about you being a woman of color, yeah. right? So um, we talked about Palestine. We talked a little bit about Islam as well. Add a third thing that I have. I can't even relate to in the sense of like I was never been. I've never been put in those shoes, but as you evolved from high school and then started going to Berkeley and then also went on to Georgetown, I'm sure a lot of opportunities were given to men instead of women. At mm-hmm.
1: um, so, you know, I guess I was kind of, I grew up in San Francisco and I grew up going to the schools in the Sunset District, which were predominantly Asian. Mm-hmm. So I think the complex that a lot of like children of immigrants have is like, in America, why am I not white? For me, it was like, why am I not Chinese like the rest of my friends, you know? So yes, I was a minority, but I was, you know, surrounded by all by other people of color as well. Um, I did feel very different. Like there were no other Arabs in school or in in, like the spaces that I was in. So I felt like very alone in that sense. Um, Once I got to college, I met a lot of like a lot of um arab kids a lot of muslim kids mm-hmm. and at the time it was in the the year after 911 and the first year of the iraq war and so um we were all kind of just very ac- activated politically because right. of those reasons and we banded together and like you know i also um was active uh, with a this group called CalServe at UC Berkeley which is like a, you know progressive multicultural um you know pro LGBT uh, student coalition which stands for cal students for equal rights and a valid education and you know like really powerful students of color that were part of that including right. women of color too and so i think that helped kind of inform my my sense of identity and also be able to connect the dots between like my community and like La Raza and the black community and the native folks. And, you know, and so I think that that was really, uh, that shaped me a lot as well. Um, Knowing that I wanted to get into journalism more, I think um, I would always thought that depending on where I end up, maybe I should conceal the fact that I'm Arab. I should downplay the fact that I'm Palestinian in a, in a pretty, um, in an industry that's not necessarily, favorable to Palestinians or people who look like me or talk like me my first sort of foray into broadcast journalism happened when I was in DC when I was still in in grad school and there's this uh, satellite channel called ART America Arab radio and television and there was a show that they did a weekly show like for and by young Arab Americans that I became a co-host of and so I was there because I was Arab, you know, and yeah. that was like part of the that was a part of the whole thing it was like we talked about our issues. We interviewed people in our community doing cool things straight out of grad school. I was hired at Al Jazeera Arabic and I was there for four years producing a weekly live current affairs talk show. And from there I went to HuffPost Live, which was mm-hmm. my first sort of like kind of, not it wasn't mainstream, but my first like American job working in an American newsroom. And I thought that it would work against me to be Arab and to be, you know, Palestinian Muslim and stuff, but they would actually be like, why don't you host a segment on what it's like to be a single Muslim woman? You know, wow. I was very fortunate that I never had to compromise who I am or what I believe in, in order to get ahead. Whereas right. had I gone maybe to ABC or CNN or NBC, I would have had to downplay that. I made the conscious decision not, not to go down that route, right. you know, and to do sort of an alternative like diy career and it ended up being you know it ended up working thank god you know with aj plus obviously i i sort of put my who i am front and center um you know i'm not apologetic about the fact that i am a woman of color that i am muslim that i am palestinian it doesn't play into every story but it definitely plays into who i am and why i choose these stories and how it informs my worldview and my sense of justice and my connections to people I identify as someone who's on the margins of society because I am that. I am Muslim. I am Palestinian. And that's helped me um, identify with other people who are marginalized. And I think it's been an asset to my reporting because not only do I have that empathy, but it also kind of builds trust with other communities and,
0: and, you know. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think that's a great point. And um, it's funny because when I think about my story and the story of how Cesar and I connected and how Milton and I connected, we're all from different places. Mm -hmm. We're all, we all are first generation Americans, but... With totally different backgrounds. And I think one thing that brought us together was this understanding that we need to essentially build bridges. Like, we really, our motto is more alike than we are different. And we really do believe that, Mm -hmm. right? Like, in order for us to see change when it comes to um, incarceration of black males, like, we need brown males as much as possible to be allies in that fight, right? Um, And the same thing when it comes to equal pay for women, right? Like, we need as many people advocating for that we need men advocating for that we need women advocating for that so I can very much relate to what it is that you're doing or very much relate to your your vision yeah it's Um, like we're
1: all allied by our
0: otherness exactly yeah yeah, yeah. that's really like it's great to celebrate those differences because Mm -hmm. there is beauty in that right there's beauty in, in diversity so fast forward to now You've done so many different things with your life, right? Like you've interviewed Bernie Sanders, which mm-hmm. I think is pretty amazing. You've taken some shots at Trump in his your interviews when uh, he was on the campaign trail. You went to North Korea to the DMZ zone. Uh, what are some of your most memorable experiences? Oh man! Or favorites
1: definitely like shouting down Trump like that was pretty. You, know, <laughs> was a, you, you mentioned. I mean, every every assignment is like special in its own way, right? Not to sound super corny. Um, I was proud that I confronted Donald Trump early on, before anyone else really had. Like yeah. at that point, he had he had. It was like a couple weeks or a few weeks after he announced his candidacy, and you know, he announced it saying that Mexico is sending its rapists and its criminals. He hadn't even gone after Muslims. Yeah, he hadn't yeah. even gone after like I think the long list that followed. But I knew that like he's it starts here, and then like you know. Where is he? Who is he going to attack next? Like, this is unacceptable. Um, so the fact that I called him out for that and I told him to his face, people are calling you racist. How do you respond to that? Whatever. Uh, right. was, I was, because even just the optics of it, like he's a big guy. He's tall. Yeah. And he's not like the slimmest. And then I'm like a small brown woman. And I think people <laughs> kind of just loved watching that, you know. Yeah. The Bernie Sanders um, interview was also um you know it was pretty powerful because no one had really put him on the record about how he feels about Israel and Palestine specific issues and I pressed him on that and he wasn't happy about it necessarily but
0: yeah you can tell in that interview if anyone ever looks it up but he seemed a little bit uncomfortable yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah. but Um, these are questions we need to know um you know, the DMZ between North and South Korea was just, like, fascinating to me, a super surreal place. I would say the um, I reported from Palestine, which was, you know, powerful to go there as a journalist and report and not just as a, you know, it's like a citizen or someone from there. Um, the refugee crisis in 2015 continues to just haunt me to this day. You know, it was just, right. it was it was heartbreaking. It continues to be heartbreaking. And we went and did a follow-up uh, last year, a couple of years after the fact. So... You know the native folks in Standing Rock, the native Hawaiians whose stories is very untold, who've suffered colonialism themselves and continue to suffer in Hawaii, which we think of as a you know paradise and vacation spot. Right. I think all these assignments of,
0: of what have what you kind of collectively taken from all those assignments? Like, what's is there like a common theme you've picked up?
1: Dang. <laughs> um, That's a hard one. I know. It's a hard one. I would say, you know, we're more alike than we are different. Right that injustice is just it's rampant and it's unfair colonialism is evil yeah. um you know oftentimes i think a lot of other mainstream outlets aren't critical enough of the us's role in destabilizing some of these contra- countries or the, mm-hmm. the hand that you know our foreign policy has played and what i go report on is like the human cost of that so i think I, w- I wish that this country would connect the dots a little bit better and that our media was a little bit more honest when it comes to those things Right. Um, and just that you know it's unfortunate how just angry people are and how divided we are as a country and how we're quick to just not we like us like you and i but you look at the comments on anything i do on the refugee crisis and it's just like these are terrorists they're this they're that i do stuff on undocumented people in this country they're illegal or deport them whatever and i'm just like yo like i really pray that we become more of a compassionate society i hope these people are not the majority um because it's extremely demoralizing so again i hope that you know, we just expand room in our hearts and just love
0: more. Yeah. You know? yeah, I think that's a solution to a lot of different problems we have. I'm
1: sure I sound like total hippie kumbaya. <laughs> but that's honestly my takeaway. My takeaway is, is compassion. And that's yeah. what we need more of.
0: Compassion and respect for one another. And yeah. I and one thing that makes me think of as well is, is even just like the videos you put out, like, you get a lot of positive feedback. And you guys also get a lot of like, really objectifying comments of just you being a woman. Mm -hmm. And I apologize for that because it really like irritates me to see that. Um, But how do you deal with being an online personality, right?
1: So first of all, the cardinal rule for when you're like online is like, don't read the comments, right? So I try (laughs) to adhere to that as much as possible, but I also just get a lot of messages coming straight to me. Um, I would say that, yeah, sometimes there is there are negative messages and people, you know, kind of trying to tear me down for who I am. But for every one of those, I would say there's 20 people coming and backing me up and like supporting me. So that's great. And the bigger challenge, I think, than people trolling me has been men objectifying me, even the ones that are fans of my work. So mm-hmm. um, I think over, over time, you develop a thicker skin and you realize like that is... It kind of is par for the course when you're a woman on camera. It's very upsetting. It's upsetting when I do a story on a serious topic and then the people, the men in the comments are just commenting on my body or my looks or something. I used to get really down about it. I still have my moments. And in the field, I try to do what I can or wear what I can or have them shoot me in a certain way so it doesn't show full body to kind of avoid the comments that I know are coming uh, regardless. I know that most because I'm able to look at the analytics on my Instagram, on my Facebook. I know that most of my followers are males between 25 and 34. So there's nothing I can do about that. I'm happy that they're watching. I wish I appealed to more females. I wish more (laughs) women would watch my stuff. Um, But, you know, if I had like a dollar for every I love you, ma'am, or marriage proposal or marry me or, you know, like you're Mm. beautiful for every message that came in, I could probably retire right now. You know, Uh, that's like... It's crazy. And it's just yeah, kind of like, yo, focus on the work. Don't focus on me. You right. know, it's flattering to some extent, but most of the time it's just like, no, I don't want this. Um, but, you know, and sometimes I'm like, how much longer do I want to be doing this? Like, I don't right. want this scrutiny. How I don't want these kind of messages. I don't want this, you know, but you mentioned sort of the younger girls and the college students or whatever, who come up to me and say, you're a role model. And for me, It makes it all worth it. You know, for me, that's like the highest compliment I could ever be paid to know that I am modeling something for the younger sort of generation that I didn't necessarily have. That they can look at me and say, oh, well, she's not compromised who she is. And she's like upfront about being Muslim. I'm proud of my identity. And and the fact that they can see that and say, I don't have to be so ashamed either. And I've had them say that to me. That to me, like makes it all worth it. That's the most... Heartwarming, you know, flattering sort of uh, feedback I get, and I'm very proud of it. It feels like a responsibility at times, yeah. but um, it's definitely a huge honor and it's extremely humbling. It's a privilege.
0: I'm sure in in some ways it's it's what keeps you going as well, right? Definitely. Like when you don't want to get out of bed in the morning or when you had <laughs> yeah. a really rough story to cover. And um, I can only imagine that the people who look up to you is also what pushes you a lot. For sure. Um, and in that same token, you're also kind of pione- you're a pioneer in this way, right? Like. Even as a journalist, you're like the first journalist to – to you mentioned earlier to use Facebook Live and, and social media, really use social media with AJ Plus um, as a platform to to practice journalism. Where do you see journalism going in the next like five to ten years and, and where do you see yourself within that?
1: I wish I knew. I wish yeah. I knew where it was going. It's such an unpredictable industry. Like had you told me when I started my career that this is what you'd be doing now and you'd be reaching millions just being online – I wouldn't have believed it. So right. I don't know what the trajectory is. It's a tough industry. There's a lot of uh, layoffs. There's a lot of, you know, like struggle within it. So I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to be doing either. Like, I, you know, at some point I have to settle down. I do want a family. I want children. I want, you know, marriage before that. Um, <laughs> and that's sort of, you know, that's got to become the highest priority at some point, yeah. hopefully. Um, I do know that whatever I, whatever, whatever trajectory i take i want to continue to tell meaningful stories in some way or another you know and continue to be that voice and use my platform in a positive way whether it takes the form of like documentary or film you know maybe i write a book i'm not sure i don't know
0: yeah um i mean that's a great great response and and i kind of like furthermore i want to take that a little bit further you know kind of one of these closing questions is how do you want to be remembered like when Damn, all of am I dying, dying anytime soon? We're, no, no, no. Not, not that you're dying anytime it. soon, hopefully. Knock, I'm going to knock on wood so yeah. you can hear it. How do I want to be um, But yeah, how do you want to be remembered?
1: I think I want to be remembered as somebody who championed justice and who advocated for justice and amplified the voices that are all too often forgotten. That's a short answer, but I think maybe that's how.
0: I wish people knew. I wish I knew like my one sentence of how I want to be remembered as well. But but yeah, that's really powerful. I think um, you're doing a really, really great job of that right now, just in the, I mean, I wouldn't say short, but you've had like a, a really compounded career with a lot going on in such a small amount of time. You're doing a really, really good job of that as well and, and telling things like they are and also on the social justice side just advocating for people who whose voices are not always heard and um i think you have such a huge platform both with aj plus and the companies you work with but also for yourself as kind of a role model and a personality yourself to amplify those voices and and share those stories as best as you can um and i wanted to thank you for doing that and commend thank you. you you're doing amazing work
1: you're too kind <laughs> no thank i'm you. serious
0: and uh, and yeah i guess uh the last question I wanted to ask is more, well, I guess I'd say two. One is, you know, there's, like, you have a crazy life. You travel a lot and you work a lot and you are always on the move. But what what is it that, like, when you get home, what do you do? Do you mm-hmm. read or, like?
1: Yeah. Um, one practice that I try to do as much as possible is write down, like, three things I'm grateful for every day to, like, remain grounded, remain grateful. And it could be as simple as, like, that really good sandwich I had earlier or, you know, the fact that I'm not undocumented, that I have this, like, passport, you know, that gives me so much ease in life. So there's that. And then I like reading a lot. I, I would say I'm more of a homebody. I, I, but I do like going out with my friends in terms of like dinners and maybe movies or going to someone's house. But I'm a bit of a homebody. So if I'm alone, I enjoy reading. I feel yeah. like reading, reading, reading specifically fiction, I think it really nourishes the soul. Um, but I also read um, the last book I just finished. When I was in South Africa, I read Trevor Noah's Born a Crime. And this is autobiography and stories in from In South Africa? Ro- Africa. In South Africa. I think it was really important to like experience that there. Um I also read a book called The Monk of Mocha, that, like a few weeks before, about this Yemeni American that I happen to know from San Francisco, product of the Tenderloin District, wow. um, named Mukhtar. And he um, basically started his own coffee company using coffee from Yemen, which Yemen has a long, rich, like, the, Yemen was the first, like, country to make coffee ever. So the book was written by Dave Eggers. It's nonfiction, also. Um, wow. Yeah, right now. Yeah, if, if I'm not reading like fiction or kind of those type of stories, it's maybe some like self-help type things. Yeah, so,
0: and then in terms of uh, wellness as well. like mm-hmm. you know, like I really you- like
1: being in nature. I think that's one of the greatest like perks of living in the Bay Area that yeah. we're surrounded by so much beautiful nature. And, and it's calming. Like I tend to run anxious. I was telling you earlier, I can be a very anxious person. But going to nature is not only calming, it kind of just gives you the perspective and reminds you how insignificant you are yeah. in this greater world. So I like doing that.
0: That's amazing. Mm-hmm. um But um, but yeah, again, I, I wanted to thank you again so much for for being here and, and having this conversation with me. Um, this is really like I started this because I want this to be an archive for myself to look back on what, whether, you know, I have questions about specific things or more about general like practices, like what makes you successful? What is it that drives you and motivates you mm-hmm. um, for everyone that I have on this show? Um, it's still very young, but um, but again, I think you're a really, really great um, role model to a lot of people, including myself. And, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I yeah, appreciate of course. it. Thanks.